Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. And if you are listening on Spotify, hopefully you are also seeing me and you'll be seeing Britt. We are going to try to take advantage of the video option on Spotify. So if all goes according to plan, you are also watching this. If you're one of our Spotify listeners, let me know what you guys think of that. So today's episode is amazing. The woman I interviewed, Britt Frank, she is an addict in recovery. She is also a licensed psychotherapist. She is a trauma specialist, and she said to include a recovering disaster of a human being, which, you know, aren't we all? And she wrote a book called The Science is Stuck. And you guys, it was literally the best self-help book I've ever read. And I've read a lot of these kinds of things. In fact, I want to get like a group of girlfriends together and go through it. Maybe it's like a workshop. Every chapter has like exercises at the end that you can do. They're like bullet points. She's got three paths to read it. Like one is if you don't have a lot of time and you just need the bullet points. One is kind of like what I did. It says like, I'm super interested. Tell me all the things. Like there are these ways that you can go through it. And we talk about getting unstuck and she defines being stuck as when there's something you really want to do that you want to take care of, do with your life. And there's no logical reason why you aren't. And you're just constantly in this mode of like, I want to do this, but what I'm actually doing is not that. And I'm way over here. And there's this gap in between where I feel awful about how stuck I am and I'm procrastinating. And how do we get out of that using her knowledge as a therapist? It is one of the best books I've ever read. And we talked today about setting New Year's goals in April versus January, which is amazing because that's right around when you guys are hearing this. We talk about how we can actually use anxiety. We can leverage anxiety as a positive thing. It will give us a roadmap into making some really active, positive changes in our life and how we can leverage anxiety for good. We talk about how there are multiple parts of our personality. And so we're sort of like an orchestra, right? And the idea of therapy isn't to change parts of our personality. It's to get them to be like a conductor and get them to work a little bit easier and get them to work together in a more cohesive way. And that's why self-care doesn't always work. Sometimes we're like doing all the self-care things. We're working out and we're taking bubble baths, but we still feel like shit. And she talks about why, because it's a different part of us that maybe needs the self-care. It's an amazing conversation. I know you guys are going to like it. Hopefully if you're on Spotify, you'll also enjoy watching it. And as always, NodPod, I love your feedback. DM me. Please let me know what you guys think. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Heroin, guys. Thank you so much. My name is Janine. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And I am so flippin' excited to have Britt Frank with us today. Britt is a licensed psychotherapist, trauma specialist, author of my new favorite book, seriously, Science of Stuck. And then I asked her, do you want me to add anything to that? And she said, add recovering disaster of a human, which I just were already girl after my own heart. Hi, Britt. How are you? I'm so happy that we finally got to connect. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> my, my my stuck was definitely getting in the way of, <laughs> and, and that is what was happening actually, which we'll talk about. But so I just read your book and it is really the most, I think, comprehensive, helpful self-help book. I don't know if it would classify it as self-help. It feels, you know, sometimes that feels like a cliche of a category, but at the same time, it's legitimate. And I read a lot of self-help stuff. I think it's like the most comprehensive, best one I've ever read. Like, I hope you're so proud of like everything that you put into this book. It just encompasses so much. In fact, I was even thinking, I want to try to get a group of girlfriends together and go through it as like a workshop. Oh, I love that. Right? Oh my gosh. 
Well, if you do that, call me and we can do like a Q&A. Okay, cool. Like, that, yeah. Because you've got, you know, you've got like the questions at the end and you could do them on your own, but it would also be really fun, I think, to do it with like a group of girlfriends and almost workshop it like a, a your, I know your original recovery was in 12 step. And so like, you know, you would do a 12 step workshop, kind of do this, but like with your book. Right. Oh my gosh. I'm so flattered. Thank you. Writing that book. It, Cause you know, everyone has an opinion and you know, not everyone's nice and skillful about how they express their opinions. My goal was write a book that I liked so that once it was out in the world and people could do it or not do what they want with it, that I could stand behind it. And I'm, I'm happy with it. It was the book I really wanted to write. So yay. It's just so, it's so comprehensive and there are so many like tools that somebody could actually do. And that's what I love, right? It's filled with solution because that's what I want. I want solution. That's why we're doing, that's why I do the podcast. I want solution because I didn't have any solutions for so long. As I've heard you say on other podcasts, like not knowing how to human, knowing how to human some areas of your life, which for you was, was school, which we'll talk about, but then not knowing how to human other areas. And I'm still actually kind of, kind of stuck in that, but Okay. So she wrote the book, Science of Stuck. Before we get to your book, because I have, I just showed her, I have like pages of notes. I even hooked up my printer and printed them and all, everything. I have pages of notes. But before we get there, let's talk about your story, because this is what I have at the top of my notes. Duke, question mark, anorexia, cult, three question marks, meth, four question marks. And I feel like, like walk us through, because I see Duke first and I'm like, wow, I'm so impressed. And then a cult? So what happened? I'm surprised you didn't highlight uh, sex addiction on top of that. Right. Well, at at eight years old. Well, the early porn addiction. Early porn addiction plus later people addiction. Right. Okay. So which one of those points do you want to talk about first? I mean, whatever. Let's maybe try to go in order of your story, right? Growing up, how you got involved in your various, what you would classify as addictions or, you know, issues with outside substances. So I... Grew up in what looked like a normal family, and I found this both personally and as a clinician, a licensed clinician, that if you do not have what's considered to be overt high-level trauma, overt abuse, you know, we always had food on the table. I never had to worry about whether I would have a place to sleep. Like, those needs were actually met in space. So what's my problem? Why am I such a mess of a person? But I didn't know that there's, like, a whole lot of ways you can mess up kids right. besides that. Like, that, I'm not comparing. Pairing. That stuff is in in and of itself traumatic and awful. But there are other kinds of traumatic and awful that I didn't know were things. The type of boundaryless, chaotic, distorted parent-child sexual chaos was so normalized for me. I didn't even know that I had trauma until I was early 20s. And a therapist was like, I was explaining some things in my family of origin. And they were like, what the fuck? That is not normal. This is my therapist. That is not normal. I'm like, oh, like not everyone's family does this. And so one of the ways that I learned to cope very early on was dissociation and like porn because this was the 80s. So porn was not as ubiquitous. Porn was like on the screen. If you can like look through the static and it's like, there's a boob, there are two people having sex. And then as I got older and I had more addictions available to me in the form of drugs and people and whatnot, I leaned into those. But I didn't even know that trauma was a thing. I never went to therapy as a kid. Feelings weren't normalized. It was always, I have severe mental illness on both sides of my family. And so it was just, I'm crazy. Like they went crazy, which 
as a clinician, I now know there's no such fucking thing as a crazy person. Even our most extreme symptoms actually make sense in context. However, the family mythology was, you know, the story of crazy. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I just went crazy real early and it's me and there's something wrong with me. I don't know why school was never a problem. This is just like grace of whatever the thing is on the mountaintop above the whatever. Mm-hmm. I, school wasn't hard for me. So I was able to dissociate and do really well in school. And that was sort of my ticket out. But yeah, I went to Duke. And nevertheless, it's, it, was kind of, it was kind of shocking to me when I got there. I'm like, everyone here is really school smart. Right. But that does not mean everyone there has their shit together. Yeah. I certainly did not. Yeah. So I skated through there. I made it. I did my thing. Cult life was a temporary respite from the drug life. I get the appeal. It's do this, think this, wear this, and we're going to tell you you're good. And any difficult feeling that you have is because of bad spirits. You know, you don't have shame. You have a demon. You're not angry. You're just, you know, being infected with, I am not like disparaging evil spirits or people who believe that like you do you. But for me, no, that was not a demon that was called shame from being sexually traumatized both early on and assaulted as an adult, as I made some less than awesome choice. You, You know, you make sex addiction, meth addiction, and just a hot mess of a personality. I'm not saying it was my fault. I'm saying I made some choices that led me down some paths where bad things happened to me. Not my fault, but that's how I got there. So did you come across the cult while you were at Duke? Were you still a student? Yeah, there was a a group, a little fringe group. And they, again, very functional, very intelligent. And they sort of drafted me in. And I was like, I love this. This is the first time I had the feeling that people wanted me around. Like they were so excited to see me. They'd come to my dorm room to come get me. It was like a fundamentalist, super fringy religious thing. I like they like me. So if I if I do what they do and believe what they tell me to believe, then they'll like me even more. And in true me fashion, I took it to the very extreme after I graduated. I'm like, where's the mothership? I want in. So I moved from New York to the Midwest and then California and then all around. But yeah. So you that's sort of you happened. moved to go live where the cult was? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So how long were you a part of the cult? Off and on for a couple of years. And again, oddly enough, not all cults are sex cults and not all cults are murder cults. And not all cults are these hate-filled protest funerals, like awful people. There's a lot of culty stuff in between the extremes. So I'm not recommending it, but I... I don't know if I would have survived had I not taken a break and done that. So we're making space for the culty gray area, if you will. (laughs) Sure. I mean, as long as you're not harming other people or being an asshole, you do you. I would not recommend it. Okay. So you're in a cult. How do you leave the cult? So again, I was fortunate that not all cults are like try to rein you in and restrain you from leaving. This one was a, there's the door. If you think differently than us, if you act differently, if you have any questions, then we're just going to shun you. And I was fortunate to be part of a shunning group and not a stay with us. We're not letting you leave group. So the shunning group just shunned me. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go do. That's when I got into meth and relationship shenaniganery, like really hardcore. Okay. Okay. So, and you've been, you consider yourself having had been in recovery. You don't have a date that you use, right? You just consider yourself having had been in recovery since the end of the meth stuff. Is that kind of what you look at being the end of that craziness for you? 
Yeah. And I respect people who count their, like you, I love that you named your sobriety date in the intro. And I have tremendous respect as an approach of counting days and honoring dates. And I think that's great. It doesn't work for me because I was addicted to so many things and relapse for things like with meth, it's like, do it or don't do it. There's your date. But with things like sex addiction, well, does dating that guy, does that count? And does the fact that I took a pill that was prescribed to me when I didn't need it and I didn't take it for it's like, does that count? And it's like, I got really culty and religious about my sobriety dates. So it's more like, I don't smoke meth. I don't do pills or other drugs, but I don't identify as someone who is clean since said date. Okay. Got it. Okay. How did you get out of the meth addiction? You did do 12 step initially, right? Yeah. Okay. You mix meth with a really, I hate that the word narcissist has gotten so buzzy overused. Everyone that's an asshole is now a narcissist. Everyone that says something you don't like is now gaslighting you. And unfortunately, that does a real disservice to people who are actually on the receiving end of actual high level sociopathic narcissist. And again, as a clinician, I can vouch that's real. It's not like we're making it up. You mix meth with a domestic violence, sociopathic narcissist situation. It really came down to, I'm going to die if I don't make different decisions. And at the time I was stubborn and didn't want to, you know, not that people, again, I have to put disclaimers, not that people who suicide are not stubborn. For me, it was, I am just going to stay alive to spite people. And I didn't want to die like that. So I had the privilege and the resources to make different choices. Not everyone does. And so I did. Okay. And that was at the time, and we'll get into the topic of the book. And that was 12 step to stop the initial, to stop the meth addiction at that time. Okay. 12 step, daily contact with a sponsor, meetings, and then it was trauma therapy, which again, I had the great privilege of being able to access. And I didn't know that was a thing. And I learned all of the things that I now know. And it's so, unless you can afford specialized therapy, people don't know that your brain does things. Like when brains are braining, shenanigans are going to happen. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be rockets. Neuroscience doesn't have to be mysterious. Let's make it accessible and make it make sense sense so we can all use it because there is great information if we can get to it. And let's get to that because your book is great information about when the brain is braining and the shenanigans that happen. So the title of the book is Science of Stuck. And let's talk about what do you mean by feeling stuck? What does that look like for someone? So our audience Mm -hmm. is clear about what we mean. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the chance to highlight that because it's so important to me to be very responsible as a mental health professional and not go to just think positive and just think your way and mind over mood. It's like, yeah, systemic racism and oppression and war and poverty are not things you can psychologically sorcery your way out of. And that's that's important to say. So when I'm talking about being stuck, I don't mean those situations. I don't mean a child who is being abused with no choices. When I'm talking about us feeling stuck, I mean, you have enough resources that there's no logical reason why you can't make the changes you say you want to make, whether it's high level like addiction or lower level, like I want to start a business, I want to eat vegetables, and this is what I say I want, but here's what I'm doing, and there's a mile wide gap what the hell? And there's no logical explanation for why I can't do it. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about being stuck. Okay. That is a great definition. That's a great definition because so what that looked like for me was when I owned my business, which was a gym through COVID, 
I was done at 11 a.m., right? My classes were at five in the morning and nine. I was home. I had plenty of time to, you know, do all the business things, but I would be stuck on my couch scrolling Instagram and it's happening again now. So there's something else in, in my life that's it's more stressful than that, actually. And it's happening again now. Like Britt and I were talking before we started recording, even my reaching out to you and the shenanigans with me emailing you, but you had already emailed me. And then I think I didn't include you on the link and the whole, like, like I need to schedule guests. I need to take time to do that. I have time to do that. And I'm sitting (laughs) on my couch, scrolling Instagram. I am stuck and there's no logical reason why. So your book is about getting unstuck and and how exactly that we get there. And you start with anxiety as a superpower so that we start getting to the place where we can get unstuck. And you go over in your book what anxiety isn't, what anxiety is, and how it's a roadmap. So do me a favor, walk us through that. Like what's anxiety and how do we leverage that to get unstuck? Sure. And no one likes that. And again, my big disclaimer, when I say anxiety is our superpower, I'm not skewing in a toxic positive thing. I'm not saying you should be grateful. And I'm not saying like, yay, anxiety. I'm saying the functionality of anxiety is self-protective. It's like you own a gym. Going to the gym doesn't always feel good. And you know, you build muscles, how? By tearing them. Like that's what's happening when you lift is like you're actually destroying. I mean, I, I don't know the exact terms. That's your field. But I do know that you're tearing shit in order to build. That's the official term. That's the official term, tearing shit. You're right. You're tearing shit. Like you're, you're doing a TS situation. You're just tearing shit. But like if you look at like how muscles grow and it's like you have to rip them apart so they grow. Why do we think that our emotional psychological health is going to be this sunshine and bunnies path of make good changes and you're going to feel good? Anxiety sucks, but anxiety is a symptom that tells us that something's not right. It could be that we're out of alignment with the relationship. It could be that we're in a dangerous situation. It could be trauma from the past that we've ignored that's now creeping up on us. COVID was a biggie. When people say that COVID created a mental health pandemic, obviously that was its own thing with its own horrors. But I found, because I was very busy during COVID in my private practice, that because we all suddenly had all this time, things that we could outrun through busyness, through day-to-day life, had time to creep up on us. And so it's not that you you were fine and suddenly you're not. It's that you weren't fine and now suddenly you have time to look around and see how not fine you are. And anxiety is like the check engine light on a car or it's like a smoke alarm. When a smoke detector goes off, it sucks, it's inconvenient, and it's annoying. And sometimes anxiety needs to be medically managed so you don't die And anxiety's function is self-protective. It is not destructive in that it does not attack us. I hate it too. I've had panic my whole life. It's awful. But like anxiety doesn't attack. So let's not call it that. Let's call it an anxiety event or an anxiety episode. But it does not attack us. We don't have to fear our brains. They're on our side. I love that. So we could also call it like an anxiety light, like a check engine light. Like, okay, I'm going to love that. Yeah, there's, there's something going on with me here. So we know that we're having anxiety for something. How do we start to find what that is? And then how does that become a way to get out of, I am sitting on the couch, scrolling, 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 feeling anxious in that moment. What would someone like me do if that was actually happening? 
So my hunch, and I could be wrong, but have you ever sat on your couch and asked yourself, why am I doing this? There's no reason for me to be doing this. What's wrong with me? Am I lazy? Am I just procrastinating? Like, why can't I get my shit together? Why can't I get up and rolling? Yes. The why question, nothing will keep you, not you, just me, you, everybody. The fastest, like, contributor to staying stuck is spinning in this, I need to know why it's happening. It's like, no, you do not. You don't need to know why a building is on fire to put it out. You don't need to know how a fire started to know you get the people out first and then we'll figure out what happened later. But everyone wants to start with this idea of why. And I get it. Like the book start with why is like, Love the land and the business world. Like you can't launch a business and be a successful entrepreneur, global leader without knowing your why. Cool. That's great. If you're in the business development sector, if you're stuck in your own space and your own body, mind, and life, don't start with why. Start with what are my choices? Okay. Forget about why you're stuck. Okay. What am I willing to say yes to right now? not later. You might not be willing to say yes to not scrolling, but maybe you'd be willing to say yes to maybe change what you're scrolling. So instead of watching people that make you feel like shit, you're watching people that might be inspirational. But I call these the micro yeses. Like we all want to shoot for the moon and then we stay stuck. That's not how Brains don't like big giant leaps. Brains like little tiny micro steps. So find a micro yes and don't worry about asking why. We'll figure out why later once you're unstuck. Okay. So if you're in that moment and you're stuck scrolling and there's things that you need to do, we just start looking at like small positive steps in the right direction. Like maybe I scroll a guest that I want to have or something. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't even have to be positive. Okay. <laughs> when you're like, neurologically, when you're stuck, anything you do that's different is going to sort of shake the snow globe of your brain and give you an, a path. Like our brains are organized to go on autopilot because autopilot conserves energy and brains like conserving energy. Brains like not doing things if it's easier than doing things. So anytime you're doing something, if you're on the couch and your feet are up, switch your feet to the other side of the couch. If you're laying in bed and you can't get out of bed, pivot so you're laying on the opposite side of the bed. Okay. And that's not magic. You're not, I'm not saying, Brit says if you change where you're sitting on your couch, your life will improve. Like, no, I'm saying if you change where you're sitting on your couch, you're going to open up a window where your brain can get unfrozen oh. because the fight, flight, freeze response is the culprit here, not laziness. Ah, okay. Okay. Another thing that you said that I love is procrastination is a trauma response to save energy. It's not someone being lazy because you said that our brains are wired for survival, not happiness. And what is it? Something not strategy. They're wired for survival, not happiness and not serenity. Yes, not serenity. And the word trauma trips, and I'm a trauma therapist, so I'm very comfortable. Like, this is what the word actually means, and this is what we're talking about. And somewhere the word trauma became as buzzy as the word narcissist. So forget the word trauma. Let's just say procrastination is a physiological fear response. Okay. Because you may not identify as someone with trauma, but if you're a human, you're going to have fear because that's just part of humaning. So procrastination is a fear response. Now, the next question is, well, why am I afraid? There shouldn't be anything logically for me to be afraid of. 
great. But like the part of your brain responsible for fight, flight, freeze is not logical. And it does not respond to your most rational analysis, whatever. Your nervous system gets to decide what counts as scary. And so rather than fighting it, the micro yes is the smallest possible thing you can do without your nervous system, you know, going and saying, nope, we're shutting the system down because your nervous system will always win. In a fight between logic and your physiology, your physiology will win every time. So again, we just keep coming back to the idea of what are small choices and changes that I can make in this moment to get myself out of this loop. And that's the answer. It sounds really reductive and it sounds really simple, but it's not easy. But if you're looking at what being stuck is, being stuck is this idea that we have no choices. That's not always, now again, if that's true, that's not what we're talking about. But this idea of I'm stuck in this relationship, that means I have no choices. Well, okay, as soon as we can find a choice point where we move you in any magnitude, in any direction, stuck becomes unstuck the second you take a step towards anything. It doesn't even need to be towards the right thing, but let's get you from stuck to unstuck. And then we can course correct and make different shifts. So we're moving you in the direction that you want to go. But if stuck is defined as the perception of no choice, then making a choice is going to be the antidote every time. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Trauma response is your brain miscalculating energy needs. Yeah. So again, it's just basically, I feel like, or the fear response is your body miscalculating energy needs. So I feel like for me, again, to use that example, it wasn't that I was lazy and procrastinating. It was that my brain was thinking, because there was a lot of feelings of like survival because it was a gym and it was closed, right? And what I'm going through right now feels like it's challenging my actual survival. It kind of is. And so it's not me being lazy. It's my brain thinking we actually need to survive. So you can't spend energy getting up and cleaning the kitchen and doing laundry. You need to not expend energy. And we're going to do that by sitting on the couch scrolling, right? That's basically what this is. That's exactly what it is. And the pushback, again, I hear this a lot, is so you're just saying it's okay to be lazy. And it's like, God, I love humaning. (laughs) No, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That you should... Like if your car runs out of gas, you don't just leave it on the side of the road and be like, okay, well, car's out of gas. I guess it's just done. It's like, no, you go to the gas station. I'm saying this is the same thing. Rather than like I could sit in a car with no gas and scream at how the car sucks and how I'm a bad driver and I'm a bad car owner. And why did this happen? And how did I let this? It's like your car is out of gas. Like, let's get to the gas station. I'll help you push. And then you can get driving again. This is the same thing. Rather than argue about why you're stuck or fight with yourself about it, about whether or not your brain should be freaked out or conserving energy, let's figure out how to get us moving again. Okay. So it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. An explanation is not a synonym for an excuse. And then you also have, so you've got in the book, you've got more actual like specific solutions and one of them, you've got two, write down the specifics of the situation and then a Mary Poppins tote. Can you go over those two solutions for this? As you said, and I like that idea too, because I'm also not somebody that really relates to the concept of trauma. Although as I get older, the more I do this podcast, the more people like you that I talk to, I understand that what you said at the beginning of the show, trauma doesn't just have to look like some sort of, you know, extreme abuse, right? It can be, you know, anything that again, as you describe in the book is too fast, too much, and too soon, right? That kind of experience can cause a trauma. So the Mary Poppins tote and writing down the specifics of the situation, what are those? Yeah. 
And the way I like to explain trauma is it brain indigestion, because we all understand how digestion sort of works. Like generally, you know that if you eat something poisoned, you're going to puke, but I could eat the same piece of contaminated food as you. And for whatever reason, you're fine. And I am not. Trauma is the same way. It's like, I don't know why this experience didn't fuck that person up. And it did me. Should it have been as bad as I thought it was? I, it doesn't matter. You okay. don't get a say in digestion. You can help your body have healthy digestion. But ultimately, combination of your genetics and what you ate and what else is going on and an automatic process. So trauma is brain indigestion. Okay. Your brain whatever reason could not metabolize an experience. And therefore you now have a quote, instead of a stomach ache, you might have anxiety or depression or, you know, inability to trust or relationship issues or whatever. And that's not minimizing it. Like, again, I shared, I'm a childhood sexual trauma survivor. I'm an adult sexual assault survivor. I'm certainly not minimizing the fuckery of trauma. I am saying physiologically it's brain indigestion. So can we call it that? Because if you name it, and this gets into your question, if you name it, I didn't make this up. Dr. Dan Siegel did. Like, if you name it, you can tame it. And so rather than saying, I'm so buried by this job, we can't do anything with that. That language is so sweeping and so general. Instead of, I'm so buried by this job, I'm just drowning in responsibility, write down specifics. Like, what does that actually mean? Because the more small and specific you can get, the more you're going to be able to access choice. If you are drowning, there are no choices there. You're drowning. That's bad. You're going to die. But if it's this, 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 here are these 20 things, maybe we can intervene on one or two of them. Okay. And again, as soon as you intervene on anything, your brain's going to come down out of the rafters a bit and you're going to feel less overwhelmed and less frozen, which is what we want. Okay. So that's that. Write down the specifics. Don't speak in metaphor. I love a good metaphor. I love like the weird like Jungian dream analysis, metaphor, symbol stuff. That's not helpful when you're stuck. Do not, I'm drowning, I'm buried, you know, I'm losing my mind. Like, don't speak in metaphor. Write down, I have 17 emails to respond to. One of those emails is a person that's going to yell at me. I don't like being yelled at. Let's get to solutions by making it smaller. Mm -hmm. There's that. The Mary Poppins tote was, I didn't come up with that, but I love the idea of having like this magic bag of resources handy. And the things that calm our central nervous system are often sensory based. So things you can smell, things like I have kinetic sand and fidget toys in every room in my house because it's helpful when you're stressed out to give your hands something to do. I was also a pack a day smoker for 20 years. So my hands need to be busy. Things that you can eat, notes to yourself to remind you, don't ask why, ask what. And in this little tote, there's sort of like, you know, kids do, when I was a play therapist, I did this with children and they love it. And it is no less beneficial for adults. Have a little tote of things that you can read, smell, play with, whatever, to remind you that you are a body and a brain and you are a biological organism and your brain is braining. So let's help it. Okay. I love that. That's perfect. Okay. We also talk about the shadow. Yes. Okay. So the shadow, describe to our audience what the shadow is, because this is another part that I, like I told you, I just went through the book and just like consumed everything in the very beginning you've got the different paths and the third path is I love everything tell me all the things when I started I was like okay you know I need to go through this and understand what she's saying so that we can talk and interview but as I was like 20 pages in I was like oh no no no, I'm, I'm an all the things person on this book I need to know all the things but okay so let's talk about the shadow 
Awesome. Okay. And I love that you named that. So for people who have no idea what we're talking about, I wrote the book. So if you have no time, there are very quick bullet points. So you don't have to read, read anything. Like that's the, I have no time. Then there's, I have some time and there's like a separate path for you. It's like the choose your own adventure books. Like I've given you three ways to go about it. I have no time. I have some time. Tell me all the things I, I will make the time. And that's sort of what we're talking about. Okay. So shadow, this is another metaphor that I love, but is not helpful. So like this idea that there's the shadow, the unconscious, all of these qualities about ourselves that we, let's make this a lot more manageable and digestible. In nature, how do shadows form? When the sun is, when the light is blocked, you're going to see a shadow. That's it. It's not that deep. So if your awareness is blocked, you're going to cast a shadow, a psychological shadow, which means you might be triggered for no reason, quote, no reason. And again, I'm not talking, if someone is abusing you, that's not you being triggered. You're responding in a way that someone being abused is going to respond. I'm talking like someone is playing a song you don't like, and now you're in this irrational rage response, things like that. So the shadow are all the qualities about ourselves, both good and bad, that we have pushed to outside of our awareness. Creativity is a big one. A lot of people think I can't be creative or playful because how am I going to meet my bottom line objectives? And I'm not going to be able to make my second quarter goals if I take time to play. And so they shadow the quality of play, but we need it. And so anywhere that we're getting into like getting triggered by people for quote, no reason, overreactions are almost always a sign of a shadow quality. So it's anything good or bad that we don't want to deal with. So we put in the basement of the psyche. Can you give me an example of someone that could have some sort of overreaction and what the shadow attached to that might be? And I know for everybody, it's going to be different, but just maybe like an example that comes to mind. Yeah. So for me, writing a book, you know, like we all have imposter syndrome. So there was a period during, you know, I want to write a book to I'm going to write a book to now I have written a book. There's a lot of space in between. And there was a period where I was uh, just seething with jealousy. And like, I would see people online posting their books and I would just feel just this, I'm not proud of this. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm just being like real talk. I was jealous and I'm looking and I'm like, I don't like that I'm being jealous, but if I'm being aware and honest, I am. But jealousy is a shadow quality that points towards our authentic desires. If I am jealous of this, that means I have an authentic desire to do it. Like I'm not jealous when I see people play sports. I have no desire to play sports. So like when you see amazing athletes, I'm like, awesome, you go. But when I see people writing books, all of a sudden I'm just seething with jealousy. Okay, great. Jealousy is a sign that there's an authentic desire that I have not let myself admit to. And once I admitted to it, then I could get unstuck and move and now you have my book. Okay. You know, I feel that when I see, this is I'm not, I'm not proud of this. When I see people buy homes, I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. You know, cause I do want that as someone that was an addict that lived in chaos for a long time. I do actually really want like the picket fence, not necessarily the picket fence, but I want to own a spot. You know what I mean? I want to own a home, you know? I do. And I thank you for sharing that. And I get that too, having lived in really not awesome places and living out of my car for a bit. I get that. But the shadow stuff is so shamed. Like you're not supposed to admit that you're jealous. You're not supposed to admit that you have envy because shame on you. You should be nice and you should support, be a good citizen of humanity. It's like, okay, but what's the fucking truth? The truth is, is that jealousy is a human quality. Rather than gaslighting ourselves into pretending it's not there, let's use it as information. 
So now it's not like, oh, I'm a bad person because I'm jealous. It's jealousy is pointing me towards a desire. Then again, what are my choices? What are my micro steps? What are my micro yeses? In that direct, you might not be able to buy a house today, but maybe you start a board of types of houses that you like, or you talk to a realtor about what does the process look like or whatever the thing is. So use those qualities. And as addicts, we're really good manipulators and we're really good salespeople and we're really good bullshit artists. And all of those qualities can be channeled into something constructive. Absolutely. Take those qualities and alchemize them and turn them into something good. The behavior is not always good, but the skill set that led to the behavior can be used for other things. Okay. So again, it's like jealousy, like anxiety. These are not necessarily things that you're claiming are pleasant, but they are things that can point us in the direction of our best life, so to speak, right? Or the things that we actually really want to do or could work on or should work on. Exactly. Again, with the, I will put a thousand disclaimers because I don't like getting the ragey DMs of like, you're babe. It's like assuming you are not in a, if you're quote jealous of someone and they're not harming you, if you're having a anger response, but you're not being, your safety is not being threatened. That's what we're talking about. Right. If you're having a rage response because someone is coming after you, that's what your brain's supposed to do. Right, right, right. Side note, do you get DMs with people not understanding that and thinking that that's what you mean? They don't always read to the end. And so I always, I'm really big on putting disclaimers in all of my posts, just like we're talking. And so fortunately, when they send that, if I'm in a charitable mood, I'll say, see disclaimer. Right. If I'm in a ragey mood, I have to just turn off the app. Otherwise, I'll say something stupid. Right, right. Or I'll just ignore it. But generally, it's see disclaimer. Like, I'm not talking about that. Your book also does something that I've never seen before. The way that you worded, you have a disclaimer at the beginning of your book, too, that I just love. It's just so well written. And you're like, all of this assumes the privilege of choice and the privilege of safety in life. So if you're reading this and you're somewhere where you are unsafe, I am not, I don't mean you, right? I don't necessarily mean your situation. And I've never seen somebody add that disclaimer at at the beginning, but I thought that that was that was important that you added that, you know, because it made me think about it too. And again, the mental health, the wellness world gets very big on like mindset. And I'm all about having a positive mindset and an action or, but like, if you're being abused or oppressed, there are situations, like you just, you said it beautifully. Like if you don't have choices, this is not the conversation. Then the conversation is how do we improve your choice points? How do we get you to a safe place to live? How do we get you out of the violent situation that you're in? How do we get you fed? You know, how do we get the Maslow hierarchy is kind of relevant here. You don't need to be thinking about thinking if your environment is unsafe. We need to get you out of there. And that's not your fault. I, you know, certain things that I didn't know, like, I'm like, I just am crazy and and lazy and a horrible person and there's nothing I can do. If you're in an oppressive environment, that's not your fault. So I wanted to really speak to this work is not for that situation and that's not your fault. You just need a different resource, not this. Right. You also talk about there are multiple parts to us. So Mm -hmm. there's like the angry child, there's the part of us that's not been attended to. There are all these different parts of our personality and it's like an orchestra. And what therapy is doing isn't to change you, but the goal of therapy is to get you to conduct yourself orchestra better, which I love this idea. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So Dr. Richard Schwartz compared the, he came up with the orchestra metaphor, which I love. And he created the internal family systems model of therapy, which I am such a just fan of. I'm trained in it. I practice it. I live it. And it's this idea that you know, and everyone knows, part of me knows, don't smoke the meth. And part of me is going, where's my phone? Part of me knows, don't date that person again. And another part of me is like, maybe this time it'll work out. So we all have parts of us. And often they have competing agendas and competing interests. And the goal of therapy isn't to banish the parts of ourselves we don't like, it's to understand them and to unburden them from whatever role that they think they need to play. And then Dick Schwartz says to conduct our inner orchestra. So all of the parts are useful. Like my addict parts, I haven't banished them. I haven't sent them packing. I'm not proud of their choices. But if you can separate the behavior from the part of me who chose that behavior, that part of me has a lot of useful gifts that she offers my whole system. We just need to give her a different job. It's like if you're a business person, think of it as like a reorg. You want to take people out of that job and put them in a job that's better suited to them. And you talk about when you think self-care, self-care could also be like part care, right? And so you get into in the book a way to determine which part of you needs attention. What does that look like? How do you determine which part of you is needing attention? Yeah. Oh, love that. This one's my favorite. One of my favorites, because people will say to me all the time, I'm doing all the self-care shit and it's not working. And it's like, cool. But which part of you is needing the care? If you've got this terrified toddler part, that part is not going to give two rips about the Peloton workout you just completed. If you've got an angry teenager part, that part is not going to think that your kale smoothie was like the ultimate in self-care. So the way to sort of figure out what you need to do to help yourself, again, assuming you have the choice, is to ask, how old do I feel right now? Do I, just generally, do I feel like an out of control teenager? Because what do teenagers need generally? They need like snacks and friends and music and movies. I mean, I'm speaking generally, but like (laughs) teenagers need connection and they need distraction and they need outlets for really big feelings. A toddler is going to need something different. Usually younger, younger parts need hugs and soothing and nurture. But how old do I feel right now is the question you ask before implementing a self-care intervention. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so cool. Apologies versus amends, because with addiction, right, and my audience is primarily people in recovery, amends is a big part of this. And you talk about apology versus amend. What is the difference between those two? I think everyone should go through the 12 steps, regardless of whether you identify as an addict. They're just such good principles for living. And the idea and the ninth step is, and I'm very, you know, share the credit, but not share it, give it. This is AA stuff. This is straight up. 12 step. Make amends is the ninth step of the 12 steps. It's not the first step for a reason because it's cheap. If you're just coming out of the gate with, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I feel so terrible. One, you haven't established trust or repair. And two, that type of apology is all about our guilt and absolving our guilt. It's not about actually tending to the other person. That's why amends is later in the process. We have a lot of self-work and cleanup to do before we have a full enough cup to offer an authentic amends. So that's that. But I love amends because it's not just a, I'm sorry. It's, this is what I did. Here's how it impacted you. Here's what I'm doing to not do the thing again. And I'm available if there's anything you need me to know. I think that is the most beautiful way of, of humaning when there's a relationship rupture. Like, 
you know, not I'm sorry. It's I admit I did the thing. And then it's we're flipping the script to here's how I think it affected you. Not here's how bad I feel. It's wow, you must have felt so hurt. You must have felt so disrespected when I did that. Like, you know, I really see that this is how you must have experienced that. In the future, I'm going to do A, B, and C so this doesn't happen again. And then what else do I need to know about how this was for you? Not how bad I feel. What was this like for you? And the beautiful thing about that too is, and sometimes people, and they've heard me say this on the show ad nauseum, 12-step gets a bad rep. And one of the reasons is people see that amends from the outside and they're like, oh, you just got to go back and look back at all your mistakes and, you know, tell everybody what a piece of shit you are. And I'm like, that's not what happens. What happens is after you make the amends, and maybe you can describe this better than I can, the feelings of shame around the incident are lifted because you've acknowledged them despite the person, like regardless of the person's reaction. Why does that happen? Do you know like why you feel better after you make an amends, like from a neuroscience perspective? I know with the 12 steps why, and again, I have my beef with 12 step programs, but I do love the steps themselves in their intention. The wording I have some issues with, but the reason that the amends are the ninth step is because you need to be able to de-shame and like find a way to like not hate yourself before otherwise making amends is going to spin you out and make you like if you haven't done steps one, two and three and you haven't done four, five and six, if you haven't actually told another human what you've done and have them respond to you with love and care, you're not going to have like the infrastructure that you need to make an amends without collapsing into a shame ball. So, you know, I don't know if there's a neurological explanation for that, but there's certainly a psychological one, which is we need to build your sense of, I am a human and I have the right to exist. And steps one through seven, that's what those steps do. And you can't offer an amends until you've built a system that can tolerate existing. Otherwise, making amends is going to spin you out and it's going to be disingenuous. So why does it make us feel better? Because that's when we like, quote, confess the worst thing that we've done and whether or not that person forgives us is irrelevant because we've already contended with we have a right to exist. They don't have a right to keep me in their life. They have the right to not keep me in their life. They don't owe me anything. I make an amends because it's a commitment to truth. And there are people that say mental health is a commitment to truth. So why do we feel better? Because we're not lying. We're saying I did this and you don't have to forgive me. It's not about forgiveness. That's why I love the ninth step. It's not about their forgiveness. It's about us committing to being truth tellers about what we've done. That's one of my favorite statements from your book. I have that on my first page of notes. Mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. And M. Scott Peck. Yeah. I didn't say that. Who said that? M. Scott Peck. Okay. The book, The Road Traveled. Oh, right. Who wrote The Road Left Tra- Less Traveled. Okay. But I feel like that space between what reality is and our desire to want it be something different, like that's where so much dissatisfaction lies. You know, like the situation that I'm in right now, I just don't want it to be happening, but it is. And it doesn't look like it's going to change. And you know what I mean? And like, I've been living in this, like fighting this reality for months and months and months. And it's like, when I read that, that's what it made me think of. Like it's affecting my mental health because I just want it to be different and it's not. Yeah. Okay. So what you're talking about really is cognitive dissonance. So neurologically, why do we feel better when we make amends? It takes so much brain energy to lie to ourselves and to try to pretend that what is isn't. So if we're talking energy conservation, our brains get a huge relief from the burden of 
keeping these competing stories, like the cognitive dissonance of I don't want this to be true, yet nevertheless it is, that requires so much energy to keep that charade up. And so when you are like, oh, no, this is as bad as I think it is, oddly that's feeling like that feels better almost because it's less energy. No, it does. Because so like four days ago, I finally made, I set a boundary and I made a real like hard change in my life about something. And I thought it would be a lot harder, but my four days since I've done this, I've gotten more done. I lost a little weight, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I didn't really know why it was better, but that makes more sense because I was conserving energy because I was pretending that what was happening wasn't. And I was living in an environment where I was pretending it was fine and it was not. And I had to make a change and I've had more energy. Which as awful as reality can be, and like, make no mistake, reality can suck. The reality of accepting the reality is going to suck less than trying to pretend that what's true isn't true. Because there's only two, this is again, the 12 step idea that there's an easy, softer way. Like, nope, total myth. There's two shitty options that you have. (laughs) One, the shitty option of acknowledging what's true and then figuring out how you can choice your way out of it or the shitty way that you're going to pretend isn't actually happening and then you're going to spin. So both ways suck. One has an exit door. One does not. So I love that. Okay. The opposite of addiction is often said to be connection and you acknowledge that that's important, but you theorize that the opposite of addiction is honesty. And that's kind of summed up in what you just said too, though, right? Because like, so what's been happening is while I'm pretending that's what's happening isn't really happening, I've been overeating a lot. And so I think that addiction is coming from my refusal to look at what's actually happening, right? Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. And again, I love, love, love the TED Talk, you know, everything you know about addiction is wrong. I love all of the books that talk about the opposite of addiction is connection. But I've worked in patient drug rehab as well as having been an addict. And inpatient drug rehab, you're connected. You're living with like-minded people. You're connected to volunteering. You're doing meaningful work. You're connected 24-7. And that doesn't solve the problem as evidenced by the revolving door of the rehab world. It's absolutely it's a nightmare. Like the system is very, very broken. Connection is not the silver bullet that manages addiction. Why? There's a lot of reasons why. But if you think about being fully in truth, I cannot get like, and I got very crafty. So like I would break my pipe, but like you can smoke meth out of a light bulb by unscrewing. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that you can work around it. (laughs) You can only tell the truth about yourself so many days in a row before you're going to, again, assuming you have choice, before you're going to realize like, oh my, I I could lie to myself. Oh, I'm going to stop tomorrow. I don't really have a problem because I only do drugs when I'm with other people. And it's not, and look, I can still, it's like, if I am lying to myself, there's no way out. The opposite of addiction is honesty because that's when I can say, I am not okay. I am a hot mess. I am a disaster. I don't want to be. I don't think I should be, but I am. So what's, again, then what are my choices and how do I find my way out? But I do think the opposite of addiction is a very, very ferocious commitment to what's true. That's why I like, and the recent beef some people have with 12 step is the identification as an addict at the top. And people think that that's a negative thing. For me, that's, my idea of an addict is a very positive thing. Actually, it's not negative at all. And it was a real relief for me to finally fight that. Okay. I'm an, I'm a real addict. I have tried this a million different ways. And if I could have done it differently, I would have, I can't, 
I'm an addict. Those steps on the wall are going to work for me because if I'm this thing, then there's a solution. Thank God. And so for me, the consistent identification as an addict is no problem because I'm like, yep, sign me up. I'm an addict. I need to do this stuff. But again, I notice there's a disconnect for some people. They think addict and they think of something like really, you know, something negative. And that's why they don't want to keep saying it over and over and over again. So I understand the concept behind people that don't love the identification. But for me, that's why it's fine. I'm like, I'm an addict and it's awesome. I love being a drug addict. The best parts of me came from being an addict, you know, really. I love that preach. And that's why there's, you know, again, assuming that you're not totally causing harm and being like an asshole, there's room at the table for almost everything. I don't identify as an addict, but it's like warms my heart to hear that that's such a healing resource for you because it's like, there's a place for almost everything. And if this doesn't work for you, it's not because you're bad. Like you're not right. And I'm not wrong. I'm not right. You're not wrong. It's like, that doesn't work for me. And it works for you. Like, awesome great. Guess what? We're all different. So I love the 12 steps and I love that there is a place for it. And if that's not your jam, there's seven other things to do. Right. Okay. Now for real, the last thing (laughs) I heard you say on another podcast, why new year's resolutions don't work and why you think we should do new year's resolutions in April. April. Yeah. Your podcast is, this is perfect timing for my audience. You're releasing at the end of March. So let's talk to my audience about why January resolutions may not have worked and they're in a great opportunity to make them now. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite things to rant about. You don't need to be a neuroscientist, and I'm not. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know October, November, and December, generally speaking, in the U.S. is holiday season. It's one of the highest incidences of depression. The idea that our families should be these things that they are not creates, talk about cognitive dissonance, like the energy, the relapse rate. October, November, fourth quarter is just total fuckery. Okay. (laughs) We're all exhausted. We're burnt out. Like, Holiday season for therapists is like tax season for accountants. Like even if you're not struggling, everyone around you is. And as like nervous system people, you're going to sort of be stressed out even if it's not happening to you personally. Okay, great. Fourth quarter, we have now burnt ourselves out with demands and expectations. And then we wonder why we don't have the energy to like crush our New Year's goals. New Like first quarter, January, February, March should be about taking inventory figuring out who you are, what you want, what works, what are your choices, what are your resources, catch your breath. Then April, as you know, the days get longer and you have now rested, reset, taken inventory. Now you have the bandwidth to make the changes that you say you want. Don't try to make a giant change while you're collapsed on January 1st from fourth quarter shenanigans. Do it in April after you spend a few months resetting the battery. I love that. That's so amazing. Is there anything else, knowing that our audience is primarily addicts, is there anything else that you would want to share that I haven't asked you about yet or that you could like leave us with? You know, the, one of the most comforting things that I learned on my personal recovery journey is like how different our brains can go, but that like, we don't become totally new people. Like I will always want to do drugs. Like drugs will never not sound fun to me. Like I have enough recovery now that I trust myself that assuming I don't put myself in front of certain situations, that I'll probably be okay. But I'd be lying to myself if I'm like, look at me now, I'm a trauma therapist and I'm healed. And it's like, no, my brain still has a five lane super highway to absolute chaos. 
and this is true. This is where like multiple truths are helpful to keep in mind. Yes, my brain is always going to skew towards not awesome stuff. And I can also build new roads that lead me to where I now am. And again, assuming I have choices, I can keep building that little gravel road to health and then turn that into an, a separate five lane superhighway. So at least I've got, you know, both. But it's really amazing how much our brains can change. And it's really amazing how much they stay the same. Like, I'm never going to not hear a drug story and go, oh, yeah, that was fun. I mean, before they're not fun, drugs are incredibly fun. That's why they're addictive. Right. <laughs> they work for us before they don't. So exactly. where can, if my audience wants to connect with you, where can everybody find you? Yes. Find me on Instagram where I have terrible boundaries and I will be on there and I will likely say hello and DM with you. So it's just effort. <laughs> and you can buy the book wherever you buy books. Okay. Okay. Well, Britt, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your patience with me as my, my stuckness was evident in our communication. But when I started reading your book, I was like, well, I know she's cool. I know she's cool 10 pages in. So hopefully we're good. <laughs> <laughs> we are so good. All is well. <laughs>